Welcome to Mox on the Mic, your exclusive look into all things Chattanooga athletics. Here's your host, Chris Goforth. Mox on the Mic, kicking off a uh, another week and a uh, look getting into the summer months now of Chattanooga athletics. This is the point in the time when there's not a lot of stuff going on on the field or on a court somewhere, so gives us a chance to, to be able to catch up with, with some individuals, including... Our guest today, Mark Wharton, he is the uh, director of athletics at UTC. He's kind enough to spend uh, a few minutes with us this week. And and the one thing I always love about having Mark on is that he's always very open, very forthcoming. There's never anything that is not on the table to talk about with him. And, uh, and he shares, I think, some, some really good insights, not only on UTC athletics, but uh, mid-major level FCS athletics as well, and uh, always enjoy it. So with all that being said, let's get right into it. Here's our conversation with Chattanooga AD, Mark Wharton. What a great spring semester, right? I mean, men's basketball was was so much fun. Uh, softball wins the conference. I thought we saw beach volleyball take, a, take another step forward. This has to be uh, pretty gratifying for you when things work out the way they did, doesn't it? It is. And, you know, we worked uh, and I said for several years that we're very, very close. And so it was very gratifying, you know, not only for our coaches, but student athletes, our campus um, and our, our city. There, there's a vibe in the town uh, about all this success and, you know, um, really, really proud of where we are. And we just not need to continue to capitalize on it. To have to hire two of your higher profile positions, men's and women's basketball. Um, literally to do that at the same time, the way you had to, can you take us inside that a, a little bit and just kind of what that process was like working through those two job openings at again, literally the same time. Yeah. I, I used to laugh about when, before I became an athletic director, that the old cliche was in their, your top right drawer that, uh, you had a list of names that, you know, you've accumulated over time that, uh, you would thought would be good fits. Um, I shortly learned that that is true. It's not a cliche. And uh, we were prepared, um, you know, knowing that we were going to have success and, and have uh, been climbing with men's basketball, that it was just a matter of time, I felt. And then um, obviously making a change in women's basketball that I felt at the time we were prepared when we start, kicked this off and, um, again, surround myself with um, some people that uh, would advise me and, you um, I felt like we were we were quick and nimble, and not necessarily wanted to do it quick. We wanted to do it right. And um, five or six days later, after Pittsburgh, we were we were on the on the go and able to have a lot of Zoom uh, interviews, which was really new uh, coming out of COVID. You know, you got used to it, and then uh, had an opportunity to be in Atlanta to bring those top candidates down there, and felt like both hires were home run hires and. Um, just really, really excited about what they bring to our athletic department, but also to our community and uh, really see success um, maintaining for the men, but uh, getting back to where our expectations are for the women as well. When did you zoom in on uh, Dan Earl as the men's coach? A year ago, um, I, I've known about Dan Earl from my time at Penn State and then followed his career uh, you know, um, when he was at Navy and, and ended up at VMI, but 
if you looked in our record books, every time we played them, either at VMI or here, they were very close games, and they've actually won a few for, uh, from us. Obviously, the last one that played here, but I just felt like if he had the resources and the ability at Chattanooga at VMI that he, you know, he would won big. But um, uh, I've said before when we were in Atlanta and got to meet face-to-face and have a conversation, all those interviews, I spent 15 minutes at the very end of the interview, just me and the candidate, and um, really felt like he was someone that, that can be a, a winner here. And um, I, I really think it's a, he's going to be great, and he's a great fit for our department. How many interviews did you do? Zoom, we probably did 12 or 13 of each. And then in Atlanta, uh, we did four for the women because we, we started that a little faster than the men. And we did six for the men in, in Atlanta and settled on, you know, Sean Poppy and Dan, Dan Earl. What were you looking for in each of those two positions? And maybe it was the same. Maybe it was different for each. But because those two programs are uh, – Look, they're in they're in uh, kind of a different uh, frame for each of them. Women's basketball was coming off a disappointing year by their standards. Men's basketball was coming off a fantastic year. Was it different? Was it the same? What were you looking for? I think both programs had different needs. Obviously, women's basketball, you know, uh, we, we have the potential with our facilities, our resources, and especially our history – um, that, that we can get back very quickly. But, you know, for the women specifically, it was culture. Uh, you know, what would be the best fit for the squad we had now and also recruiting to be able to come in and put those pieces together. And I think it just boiled down to, you know, Sean, and I, I'm very, very close with the, his former head coach at uh, Virginia Tech, uh, Kenny Brooks, who he and I were together at James Madison 100 years ago, it feels like. And the type of program that Kenny runs, the culture, family atmosphere, I got that same uh, feeling with Sean. And Sean was with him for six years at Virginia Tech and obviously built a program to be in the top 20 in the country that uh, I just felt with all the candidates, I, I think were outstanding. But I felt Sean Poppy and what he can bring to the program, his personality, the way he builds staff and the way he recruits that uh, – he would be the perfect fit here. And I believe that. Um, and then, you know, with Dan in the men's side, you know, it's amazing with all our searches, you look at, we just hired a men's golf coach, uh, women's volleyball. It seems like, you know, when we hired wrestling as well as football, that all our candidates can come here and win and win big. But again, it boils down to culture and how, you know, uh, how all our coaches interact together, but also our staffs and, um, you know, just boiled down that I felt that both of those candidates, Dan talking about basketball would be a great, uh, culture fit for our department and, uh, is a heck of a, uh, basketball coach as well. From a, from a hiring standpoint, this, these last couple of months, this has been the, the busiest period of time for that since you've been here, hadn't it? There's no question. Usually I feel like we switch gears mid-March, you know, as far as the chaos of, you know, going from sport to sport to sport throughout the spring. But, you know, from mid-February you know, through uh, certainly April, it was uh, constantly on the road um, in interview mode. And 
you know, it's hugely stressful that uh, you want to make the, the best decision for the institution. And um, again, all of them are undefeated. So I, I'm so far so good. But uh, <laughs> yeah, it, it, this has been a very unusual spring uh, that I've ever had. I, I want to get to some facility stuff here in a minute, but, but I, I wanted to ask you a couple of things as well. The Southern conference is, is the only conference now with a rule that says, if you transfer from one school to another within the conference, you have to sit out a year. Is there any serious talk about that going away? We, uh, we just got back a week or so ago from the SoCon spring meetings in Hilton head. And that was a topic of, a lot of conversation. Obviously, you know, I felt uh, strange there because we have uh, Honor Huff, who's come from BMI uh, with Dan Earl, that uh, I felt like if I brought it up or pushed it, that obviously it's selfish. But um, again, there's so much precedent out there. Uh, the Big South, shortly after our meetings, you know, announced that they were lifting the interconference transfer. Our ADs and our, our CEOs feel like Right, wrong, or indifferent, the SOCON is very unique because of the two militaries uh, that can't get transfers um, and a couple of the private schools in our league that don't have graduate you know, schools to be able to help get grad transfers. And so they felt um, that we needed in our unique situation with the conference to stay pat on the, the transfer rule. And um, I, I do see that we will revisit that quite a bit over the next couple of years, but um, it's what came out of the spring meetings that we were going to stand pat. Anything else that uh, was discussed or, or came out of those spring meetings that you can share? Well, I mean, the big thing that's happening in the, the, the world of college athletics is the NCAA Transformational Committee about how they're going to change the scope of college athletics and how it will affect schools like, you know, UTC, the Southern Conference, a lot of the regulation is going to be pushed to the conferences rather than governed by the NCAA and what that looks like, whether it's um, investigations, uh, penalties, sanctions, uh, how the money's going to work with the NCAA coming back down, you know, um, and, you know, of course, what we talk about is the separation, uh, continued separation of the power five, you know, um, we had the, the co-chair, uh, the athletic director at Ohio uh, come and visit with us and talk about their discussions and, and what that looks like. I think they've got a lot, a lot of work to do, but uh, we're really trying to be proactive as much as we can, which is not saying a lot because there's not a lot of decisions have been made. Um, but that, that probably was the biggest indicator of what we discussed and just trying to be prepared uh, as an institution, you know, concerned we want to keep what you know money we get from the NCAA because it helps us run our programs but uh, that those were the biggest topics is the transfer and the transformational committee do you see at some point in time the power five pulling away and that being their own if you will their own level of football much like you know, FBS and FCS is different currently. Could there be that third level of the, you know, top, you know, largest 60 teams or whatever? I do think there's going to be some kind of reiteration. The other thing they, they've talked about, uh, about the transformational committee is what does being an NCAA division one institution institution look like uh, right now they used uh, quite a bit, the baseball analogy that they have 11.7 scholarships 
and they're, they're having conversations about, you know, allowing them unlimited scholarships, but uh, you would have to have a minimum of 11.7. There's a lot of schools at, at the FCS level, mid-major level that you're allowed 11.7, but some might have nine, um, you know, that once they make those decisions, it's not maximum scholarships, it's minimum. And so, you know, our example would be wrestling. You know, they're allowed 9.8 scholarships, something like that. We fund them to about 8.5, that if we wanted to field a Division One wrestling uh, program, we'd have to go up to that. But the Penn States of the world, the you know, the uh, <clears throat> Iowa's, they can have 25 scholarship wrestlers, which again will affect how you recruit, you know, the, the talent level, the, the parity that is now in, in college athletics, I think um, that will affect, again, that top 60, 70 schools versus the other 220 some odd or more than that. But, uh, you know, we also look about the transformational committee. There's only two um, people represented that are part of the FCS mid-major. So it's the majority that aren't making or have a vote where the minority are the ability to make those decisions of what college athletics is going to be about moving forward. And so it's a, it's, it's very interesting and frustrating and exciting all at the same time. You brought up wrestling. Uh, how many other programs at UTC are not fully funded from a scholarship standpoint? I would say, I guess the reverse, what are fully funded? I think we have six of our programs that are fully funded. Obviously, our headcount sports, would be, which would be football, men's, women's, basketball, volleyball, and women's tennis uh, that are fully funded. And then for the majority, what we've talked about in all sports, that we want to be in the top three of our league as far as funding, that's scholarships, recruiting, salaries. Um we, we, we are there in all but two sports, which would be soccer and uh, track and field, uh, men's and women's track and field and cross country. So um, we, I, we fight, you know, and do an analysis all the time, usually in the spring about where we fit in the Southern Conference and um, our administration, fundraisers, all that, try to find resources to make sure they sit, stay in the top three or close to it. Uh, name, image, and likeness. And we've, we've talked about it before, but it has turned into basically a pay for play at the power five level. How do you see that being used at the FCS level? Well, I've said it before that I, I thought it would be a year or so until it affected us, but it's affected us immediately. Um, first indication was football recruiting in December and January that uh, I think our coaches, Rusty Wright, his staff do a really good job of getting pieces through the transfer portal to help us. And um, I think he does a tremendous job. You can see through the last couple of years, but right now is those uh, transfers that come in and ask, you know, what, what, what opportunities do I have with name, image and likeness? And we have to get into the game and be very, very smart. But I think there's a lot of repercussions that could happen where, an, uh, an individual or corporation that has supported us in the, in the, in the past of revenue, you know, whether it's Mox Club, corporate sponsorship, et cetera, jumps into the NIL, which is not institute through our institution, 
that they'll they'll limit what they get back to the institution. So they're having to make a decision about, you know, helping us either through NIL, which again does not go through the institution or corporate sponsorships. And so we're we're really working hard, you know, to be able to try to understand it and how best it could help us without hurting us. So it's, it's a real thing. How does the, how does the NIL flow? Where does it go? Who handles that? Well, right now we have one individual, um, the big buzzword now is the collectives, right? um, This individual is the one steering that collective that monies would go through that individual and then be delved out through advisement of our coaches and our administration on who gets it. Obviously the numbers at our level aren't that big, but the idea is to be able to, to offer them something in like a stipend type format, a thousand or $2,000 to be able to, to entice them to be able to come here again, that that's not the nature of the rule that they intended. Um, but, uh, as you talked about the dirty word, pay for play that, uh, there needs to be something that we provide our student athletes that we, we continue our co- uh, competitive advantage. Um, but it, it, it's challenging on how we navigate that through a third party that's quote unquote representing UTC, but doesn't represent UTC and uh, how that's confusing to a donor that if this individual approaches them about giving to the collective, does that individual know that they're not associated with UTC or not? And I, I think, you know, that's challenging for me because again, we talk about culture and how our department is, which I think is, is the best I've ever seen that you have someone out in the wild, wild west that might, you know, might uh, not represent our institution the way we want to. You know, this has become such a, um, yeah, quite the conundrum, I guess. And, and you have, you have mentioned it, the fact that, you know, for years, part of your job and the people that have been in your chair before you has been, you know, you went out, you fundraised and it was, Hey, we need, we need new facilities. We need new locker rooms. We need, you know, McKenzie arena needs to be remodeled. This is what we're going to do now. It's to your point, I guess now you're asking people almost to choose, right? I mean, because there's not a lot of people that can say, yes, I can help fund facilities, but I can also help fund NIL deals as well. I mean, that is, I would imagine for you, for your staff, for the people that are involved in this, that's gotta be a scary, but B that's where it's. Am I wrong that, that that's really the biggest concern here overall? It is. I mean, I read an article uh, last week about, you know, you, you always heard about the arms race and especially power five, but we're in the middle of it too with McKenzie arena, our weight room, but you know, we, we keep these, the facilities new and all the bells and whistles, a barbershop, barbershop chair in the locker room, a player's lounge, you know, that used to be what, players were looking for the bells and whistles to come to an institution. Well, that's, that's gone by the wayside. It's now who's going to pay me the most. And that's what the quote, I'm going to be loyal to your institution because you're going to pay me. 
It's not the not the bright, shiny facilities or things like that. And that that's another conundrum, you know, on top of all that, you know, about the, the effect it has on the donors, the revenue to the institution, you know, and, and the loyalty to the power C and you know that 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 is what concerns me the most about you know getting kids to come to your institution. You promise them, somebody promises them an NIL deal. They don't play, or they transfer, or they get in trouble. You know what happens? All, all those different scenarios that you're trying to manage. How many student athletes at UTC have NIL deals? Do you have any idea? It's upwards of seventy of our 300 student athletes are in, in some sort of NIL deal. Do you anticipate there being any form of NIL legislation? They're going to try. I, I've just always said the toothpaste is out of the tube and they, they can't reel it back. Uh, I just think there needs to be some regulation. I've said it from day one a year ago before they passed it July 1st, but there needs to be a market value put on this that, um, you know, the, the, an offensive lineman gets 25 grand or up to and a quarterback gets the, you know, who's going to do that? Not the leagues, not, not the NCAA. It has to be a, a you know, federal legislation. Um, but they're, they're too scared to be able to jump into that. Nor do I think they're informed enough have ever been inside uh, the ugly, ugly underbelly of college athletics to be able to, make an informed decision on what that does look like. But I think they're going to attempt to, I think they're going to make a mistake once they do it. And then a year later they'll fix it. But we're, you know, what that looks like in the end, ultimately uh, uh, it's concerning. So the SEC is going through this, this whole conversation now about what their conference schedule looks like when they go to, when they go to 16 teams, do you worry about those quote unquote money games as we call them. Do you worry about those games going away against power five competition? Uh, I think we'll still do it. Um, I think they're going to be selective. You know, it really, if they go to nine league games from eight, I think the inventory is going to be a lot less for FCS schools. Um, we, you know, I've, there's two SES, uh, SEC teams that, we had verbal agreements for games in 25 and 26, which sounds like it's far away, but you know, it's not that they have not, they, they won't agree to be able to do a contract until they know their the scheduling model, which if we, you know, keep pushing it out, we, we might lose that game and not have a, a pay game. If they go that way, one of the bright spots is the big 10, they have a rule within their league that they can play an FCS school every other year. And there's conversations in their meetings about allowing FCS every year, which will create more inventory. Obviously that's not too much in our footprint um, with our fan base, as well as uh, local travel. You know, we play Illinois this year, uh, which is great, but uh, I think that will create opportunities to, to increase our inventory to be able to, keep those pay games. But again, we're in flux until these leagues make those decisions. You see what Jacksonville state is doing, what your old school and James Madison's doing and making that move to FC, uh, FBS football. What's the future of FCS football? 
that's what concerns me probably the most. And, and I hate using the word keeps me up at night is like you talked about the move or the break away from the power five and the domino effect that that can make, you know, that, that will FCS be the virtual new division two, you know, that uh, we get pushed down another level. I, I'm not wired yet to, to accept that. I, I still think we are in a position as a campus, as a community to compete and almost beat Illinois in basketball in the NCAA tournament. You know, we should have beat Kentucky, uh, who was a, you know, 10-win, you know, season last year in football. And I think, you know, we're, we still have the opportunity to hear, here to play the big boys. But if some of these decisions happen, uh, resources get cut, you know, there's only only so much you can do and decisions you can make um, that uh, can keep you at that level. So I, I just – I'm deeply concerned, but I'm not going to give up the fight. And I don't think our staff's going to give up the fight to continue to, to press on. I think, you know, Jacksonville State, you know, I don't know enough about them, but, you know, they've jumped into a situation that they've got to immediately figure out how to travel football on, on charter flights, basketball flights, how they get their, you know, uh, volleyball team to the Midwest and the West Coast, you know, that all of a sudden from an FCS budget to a FBS expectation, you know, that that's a big risk. Update us on the arena renovations. I know things have, uh, things have started. There's things happening. Uh, can you bring us up to date on, on how things are going there? Yes, it's exciting. And they, they're moving a hundred miles an hour. The, the second floor of the arena is completely gutted, which, uh, was the, old women's basketball locker room, the medical facility, uh, some other uh, ancillary locker rooms we had up there. It's completely empty. They now have moved to the first floor, tearing out you know, the football locker rooms, the men's basketball locker room. All that is, is underway right now, and you can hear the, the workers on a daily basis. Um, we get updated every other week that uh, it is my hope that they, could, they start the renovation, you know, at, other than the, the destroying everything, but to be able to start putting back things into the second, first floor as they build the, the new building, uh, which has not started. They haven't dug any holes, but they're, uh, they're moving fast and furious. I'm very encouraged uh, about the pace that they, they're under. A couple of things that you and I have talked about before. I want to revisit one of those being Ingle Stadium and, and that property. Uh, beach volleyball is there. There is a uh, a beautiful soccer facility there. What's next for that property, and, and in particular, the stadium itself? Well, the campus is in the middle of probably finishing up a um, master's facility plan for the campus. A large part of that is that area down uh, where Ingle Stadium is, and you know, iterations from putting a softball field there to a track with uh, um, a soccer field in the middle of it. Um, again, they, they, they know that's a valuable, valuable, valuable piece of property and, and a great part of town that is growing that uh, uh, I think you're going to see in the next five to 10 years something happening uh, once they agree on what can go there. Um, but uh, they, they're going to continue to enlarge that footprint down there and see where the campus growth is going to head that way. So 
Um, it's exciting to see all kinds of iterations there. So we'll, we'll know here probably in the next three months. Last time we spoke, you had mentioned the, the, at least the idea very early in the idea of exploring a football stadium on campus. Anything new with that? Again, with the facilities master plan, you know, they've talked about around the Ingle property. Um, they have also talked about, um, right outside my window in McKenzie arena, uh, looking at something that uh, will be an on-campus facility, uh, very similar to the model of the Jacksonville state that, um, the part of the facility will house the alumni association, ROTC, maybe have a dorm in it, uh, that will help, you know, provide re- uh, funding for that. But, um, again, there, there's two spots that they've looked on campus that, uh, to bring football back to campus, but that, that again, will be in that long range facilities master plan as a concept that, uh, you know, the chancellor and others above my pay grade will make a decision in the next five to 10 years. Uh, do we need an indoor practice facility for football? I mean, that's a nice concept. Uh, I think, you know, the weather we get in uh, February, March, that uh, it would be great. Um, you know, the, the other aspect is if we do move forward and build that stadium on campus is, you know, moving or using this scrappy more site is something uh, luxury graduate apartments down there, uh, you know, different types of um, uh, academic areas, but uh, using that new football stadium, whether I haven't heard of a dome yet, but uh, be able to use certain um, aspects, but uh we, we've got so many other things that we've got to tackle that uh, so far an indoor, indoor uh, or covered practice facility has not, uh, not been on the radar. Mark, I appreciate it. I always appreciate your, your insight and your, your, uh, your willingness to be uh, forthcoming about uh, all things that are going on. So it's always a pleasure. And uh, look, football will be here before you, uh, before you know it. And I look forward to uh, seeing you again soon. Well, I appreciate it. It's exciting times in Chattanooga Athletics, and we just got to keep going. Thanks again to Mark for giving us some time. Thanks to Tate Johnson, as always, for uh, putting this together. And thanks to you for listening. Remind you to uh, subscribe, rate, and review Mox on the Mic. We deliver it to you every Thursday, and we'll continue to do so during these uh, summer months. I mentioned to Mark, we've got football. It will be here before you know it, so it won't be too much longer. We'll be doing a little little preview of, uh, of Mox football as we get closer to the season. But thanks for being with us again this week. We'll see you again real soon. Until the next time, so long and go Mox. Thanks for listening to Mox on the Mic. Please remember to rate, subscribe, and review. And we'll see you again soon.